Hello, everybody, and welcome to Economics Happy Hour. My name's Matt. And I'm Jadrian. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, Jadrian, what is new in your world? Ooh, uh, nothing. So we are uh, recording this in the middle of June. Um, I would say that I'm finally slowing down on stuff, but I'm not. I'm still working on stuff. Uh, I would say yeah, no, nothing. Nothing is really going on, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's finally getting close to sort of vacation-y, relaxing. If I don't do something one day, I don't feel bad about it. So I'm, I'm at that stage of the summer. That's good. Yeah. Unwinding time is good. Yeah. I'm still reasonably you? busy, but I mean, I did, I was out last week, so it makes sense that I'm busy, but it's, <laughs> it's time we're getting to the stretch where I'll take a little bit of time off here and there for, you know, still working, still doing exciting things like the annual report for the business school. And I think my, I think mine's due at the end of the month. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's been on my list. Like for... that. So, uh, what are you drinking t- this afternoon? All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to share two things with you. I'm going to share both my cup and my drink. Uh, so cup wise, got a brand new pint glass, uh, thanks to a $5 donation to the College of Science uh, at Virginia Tech. It is a, because uh, I had one of these from before, so I really liked it. So I signed up again. Virginia Tech. So if you're on YouTube, you can see it. Uh, it's an yep. orange, which is my favorite color, orange Virginia Tech Science uh, pint glass, but it's one of the like squishy pint glasses, oh, right? Wow. So it's a silicone one. Uh, the Virginia Tech Science logo. So it's sort of cool. I think we've talked about this a few times. Economics is in the College of Science at Virginia Tech, not any of the other ones. Yep. Uh, but our logo, our official logo, is the periodic table. Uh, so 1872, yep. when Virginia Tech was founded, 11, the number of schools and departments. Uh, so it's a neat little sort of science plate, cool. even though we, we don't use the periodic table. Uh, it feels kind of neat to be yep. part of that. Oh, oh for, cool. for the the weekend. Uh, I'm switching it up. So it's summertime, right? I feel like I get, we got to switch into summer mode. My favorite summer beer is actually, and I don't even know if I should call it a beer because it's kind of a beer, a shandy. So okay. I got, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce this, oh, okay. uh, N- Narangaset. I'm going to go with Narangaset and hope that that's correct. Um, okay. Otherwise, it's like Narangaset. Ner- I don't know. It's out of, I think, Rhode Island. I probably shouldn't. Yeah, Rhode Island. Uh, it uses Dell's lemonade, but it's a shandy. So those of you who don't drink, a shandy is a half lemonade, half beer. So it is an amazing summertime yeah. beverage because you don't feel like you're drinking a beer. It really just tastes like you're drinking lemonade. Given it's the town, I think it's Narragansett. I hey, you're better than me. And the, well, the only reason I know it is actually there's a song that's on Broadway Econ. Okay. Where, um, it's called Rhode Island is famous for you. And, so, that's yes. the, and yeah. so they name a whole bunch of towns. And one of them is that. Okay. Town. That's the say only Say it again because I don't know how to say I it. I believe it's Narragansett. Narragansett. Okay. Something like that is a town that I'd never heard of. <laughs> I've heard um, of the beer though. Um, yeah. Now I know the beer. Um, and I am having a, uh, doing a growler, uh, Marzoni's. Uh, they have a new IPA called a both coasts IPA. Oh no. in, like, That's going to be like a hazy West coast IPA. Is that well, what's combined? Right. It's like, right. Is that, is that is a hazy West coast hazy combining the West coast. Right. And said, so it's both coasts IPA. Oh. Um, nice it's not quite as high alcohol as the uh, their typical ipa which i actually like their their normal one is so strong that i i don't you know i can have one but more than one and <laughs> gets things get a little tricky so i'm checking untapped now on the beer that i just got looks like a pretty i would say an average rating but it could just okay. be the shandy part maybe people don't like shandies yeah so cheers delicious cheers mm. so today we want to discuss some of the economic concepts that 
are involved with Taylor Swift and her concert tour and basically everything about Taylor Swift. Oh, I <laughs> no, say not everything. everything. Not everything. We, no. we promised ourselves we would not do no. everything because there's yeah. too much stuff. Okay, yeah. A couple topics okay. within okay. Taylor Swift because you're right. If, I mean, we're going to, a couple different things we find interesting yes. on this. And yeah. the first thing I reached out and I mentioned this idea after I saw you retweeted one and I'd seen this as well for Beyonce. You mm-hmm. retweeted um, something that was indicating that somebody could get a ticket to go see Taylor Swift in Argentina. Argentina. And it was cheaper to buy the airfare and the ticket and a hotel yeah. and go to Argentina than to buy a ticket to go domestically within yeah. the States. And it, <laughs> thanks, it wasn't even that close. Thanks, Argentinian inflation. That's yeah. And it wasn't even that close, actually. No. You know, it yeah. wasn't like you'd save three dollars. I mean, you'd yeah. save 500 bucks and you get to go to Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there is a, you know, there, there's a law of one price that economists sometimes teach, and it has these various conditions, and you don't expect it to work perfectly with something like a concert tour, but you wouldn't expect it to be this far off. What's what's going on where this is happening? And the same thing happened with Beyonce and her tour, yeah. and actually you could get tickets in Europe, mm-hmm. I believe, for Beyonce and fly over there cheaper than getting at some of the venues here. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to market power and we, we actually, I don't think we've really had much of a conversation on this. So I'd say market power, but also just market forces, right? So things like demand um, across the United States, uh, you know, we have lots of venues that can host 60, 70,000 people at a time, uh, relatively large incomes compared to the rest of the world. Um, exp- a lot of disposable income that can be spent on things like this. Uh, and so those are a lot of big drivers where, you know, in the United States, we have uh, enough wealth and enough income across the country and enough people with that disposable income that drives those prices up in the United States. Uh, but in a place like Argentina and Europe, uh, not as much income, not as much, uh, not as many people, but also I'll add on top of it, right? These are English singers. So you also yep. realistically need a subset of people who understand the songs. And granted, there might be people who don't speak English at all in some of these countries, but you know they want to go and just listen. Uh, but that's still a subset of their population. Right. Whereas in the United States, you know, she's really applying yeah. or appealing to everyone. And I mean, even beyond that, even if everybody, let, let's, I have no idea between here and Australia, for example, but there's no reason to necessarily think that she'd be as popular in, you know, she equally popular in every country. It could yeah. be even among the English speakers. Maybe, maybe it's not quite as popular. So I can actually, I, I semi know the answer to this, but I'm going to say very little. She is definitely one of the most popular artists in the United States, uh, but Spotify does do a popularity uh, ranking uh, based on, so they'll give you worldwide data uh, of like which artist is streamed the most often uh, globally. So they do this each yep. year. They do like a Spotify year-end review Um They'll do it for the United States. They'll do it for the whole world. Yep. And if you look at the entire world, it is often uh, not Taylor Swift. I think so. Granted, it's been a couple of years. She might have changed over the past year or two with her with her concert coming out. She might be the most uh, popular one now. But even I'm going to try to go back through it. Yeah. So if you go to 2022, so last year, uh, she came in at number two most uh, popular artist streamed globally. Top I think one was like, it K-pop. Uh, no, the top one's Bad Bunny. Uh, okay. K-pop comes in at number five. Okay. Um, but if you go back like just a couple, so that could be driven by the announcement of her tour. Um, but if you were to go back, say like, I think it was three or four years ago, maybe it was the 2021 release, 2020, 
Um, I think she came in at number eight and a K-pop band was ahead of her. Okay. And so I think a lot of it, you know, it, de- it depends on kind of what's going on and whether she's the top one. So right, internationally, it, it might be something else. I think Bad Bunny's actually been the top person for like multiple years in a row. Okay. Uh, so Spanish, uh, a Spanish rapper, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's pretty fascinating. I would still imagine if you ask the average Taylor Swift fan, would you rather have a ticket to the concert in Philadelphia or for the exact same price, would you rather have two nights in Argentina and a ticket to the concert in Argentina? They and t- you, I, we cover everything. Plus, you know, and you get to go to this different country for a couple of days. I think I would have thought more people would have opted for that making, but um, I clearly, clearly that's not happening. And I don't know if yeah. it's a legal restriction that you just cannot resell the tickets for hire or what's no. going on there. You know, my guess, if I had to guess, right, like why aren't people just flocking, flocking there? You know, part of it is, I think. Part of it is going going to a concert is is usually something you do with a group of friends, right? You don't usually go to the concert by yourself. And so if you're thinking about like, you know, I want to go to Argentina with my friends, it's not just, it's not just me. I got to convince like three other people. Maybe it's a group of four of us to go. Financially, it's cheaper, but maybe it's one of those things where it's just harder, right? To maybe one of the people in our group doesn't have a, uh, doesn't have a passport. So we're not gonna be able to get it in time. Somebody's afraid of flying. Uh, I mean, going to Argentina, you still do need to speak some Spanish. uh, And I, you know, that might be enough to scare people away from just the the comfort of it. You know, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I feel like it's always a shockingly low percentage of Americans even have a passport. I want to say it's like 30%. I I feel like it's low. Yeah, I think I will take the under. I'm going to look it up right now. (laughs) Okay, Um, you take the under, right? But, you know, I'm taking the under... Americans have a so that's part of the issue too right is you you have these what we would normally call transaction costs right like you have to you have to get a passport and you might need to get a visa and you're going to have to deal with uh speaking Spanish and you're gonna have to stay for multiple nights right it's not just one night you got to be able to get multiple days off and that might be hard to do I was way off it's 56 percent according to that feels shocked that feels too high I don't know it is American adults it says not okay but still I still feel like I've always I feel like I've always heard that it was like closer to like a third yeah. Uh, hey, this is AmericanCommunities.org. I mean, we've got to assume they can't be wrong. But, uh, a I, different one, a different, actually, YouGov came out with Yeah, I was just saying, just, I, we scrolled down a little bit. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, and it's between you know, one third and 56%. I'm going to trust YouGov, but I'm going to say it only from this, from this perspective. The YouGov one says how many of them have an, a valid passport. Okay. And that could be the difference, right? Uh, is that, a lot of them. Statista actually has their most recent was 2017. I would trust them more than either. And they said 42%, which was in between. Oh, well, here I go. I'll, I'll give you even better. I'll give you the State Department. That one might be that one. Okay, up. I'm gonna tr- yep. 2022, they issued 21.9 million passports. But that's just uh, valid passports. And so statistical data is available on the number of passports issued by year. Valid. Po- oh, sorry. We I got to give you the valid passports. Here. Yeah. Valid passports in circulation. There are 151, 814,305 passports. Okay. So that's that, 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 about half. That a little less than half. half. Yeah. A little less than half of 42 sounding about right. We've gone down a rabbit hole here. But Pass- I think the point is your point is right. Right. Not everybody has a passport. Yeah. Not everybody could travel. Not everybody speaks Spanish. So I think I thought that was, I, it's just kind of a fascinating fact. Um, but you know, you have a good point, right? Why not buy those tickets? And then resell them at higher prices, right? Why not buy them on the secondary market, yeah. right? Buy a cheap Argentinian ticket and then resell it in Argentina and hope that somebody buys it. 
but you know, I think you run that same risk is you, this actually goes back to, uh, right. Actually, this is way off topic from what Matt and I came into this. I would argue that that's sort of around the efficient market hypothesis. Sure. sure. Right. So that if you think you have an arbitrage opportunity, you know, why do you think you're the one who can do that? If, you know, it's not, it's not free money. So somebody else has probably already figured out that that low price in Argentina is the highest price that Argentinians would actually yeah, pay. Yeah. The idea arbitrage for those, I'm sure most listening know, but it's just the opportunity to make free money off of something, to buy something and essentially instantly sell it for a higher price. Buy, yeah. Um, buy low, sell high. That, that's always yeah, the easiest it's, way. It's essentially, to... and it's a no risk thing. It's not like you're speculating. It's a no risk thing. Um, so th- that was one kind of interesting thing when, you know, see- seeing that. Uh, another question that I've pondered a bit. So Taylor Swift came out and she had the prices for her tickets when when they were for sale and and they weren't super cheap by any means, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it'd be a couple hundred bucks or more per tickets. I think the cheapest might have been 100 or in that ballpark, but and then um however then they go on the secondary market and when it was in Philadelphia recently and my son got a ticket to go to that, my oldest um he he's got a good friend somewhere. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> to get that ticket. Um because you did not have to pay uh, the the prices that you're seeing, but we looked a couple of days ahead of time, and the cheapest, the cheapest, a partial view was fourteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Here, uh, I'll give you the. So um, Matt and I recording this again mid June. Matt, if you would like to go this weekend to Pittsburgh, so okay. Taylor Swift is playing yep. uh, in Swiftsburg, I think is what they're calling it. Yeah. Uh, Saturday night, top shelf. It is unrestricted, uh, unrestricted yeah. view. Section five oh seven row in two tickets will cost you $1,445 each before taxes and fees, which if any of you have ever purchased uh, tickets online for a secondary event, uh, I'm going to click through and hopefully try not to buy these. Yeah, I just StubHub adds, it adds 25%. StubHub does. I, when I bought on StubHub, it's... I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to sign in and, and not accidentally yeah. purchase these. So, uh, I can't find it. Right. So, yeah, but if you and is she leaving on the table or is she leaving money on the table? Is she rational with her pricing strategy? Let's assuming all she wants to do is maximize profits, which I don't think is true. But if that's the case, is she leaving a lot of money on the table here? That's a, it's kind of an interesting question because people are instantly selling. Yeah. So th- th- this is always really good. And this is, I think, you, I think you and I have gotten to talk about this like very briefly in different different episodes where we have these theories that we talk about in economics, this idea that you should be profit maximizing and you should charge the highest price you possibly like we we talk yeah, about yeah. this as though like they're universal laws. And then we see these things happen and we question, right? Like, is she do is she doing it right? And then us two knuckleheads are like, no, right? She's leaving money on the table. She could have charged a thousand dollars for that upper deck ticket. I'm going to say, no, I, I think she's doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. But I, and I think this goes back to some of the, I would say limitations of the way we teach it in principles courses. She's not selling just one product, right? So right. a ticket to the concert is part of it. Um, however, she is also, you know, she's going to collect money on merchandise. She's going to collect some of the parking money. Probably she's probably getting a cut of the concessions, but she's getting cuts yep. of other things. So right? You, you want to pack the house. The most important thing for an artist is you want that place sold out. Uh, right. You don't want to try to find the profit maximizing point where it's just like 20 millionaires down on the front who get a private showing. 
Uh, that concert's not fun. It's much better to be with 50,000 of your friends rather than five. And so I think, you know, sort of from that perspective, she is creating an environment that is going to be memorable for individuals. And I think I was essentially say she's playing the long game. She's losing some money today, but I think she's going to make it up in the long run. I mean, she still sells CDs. They're still selling, uh, out, you know, albums are coming back. I actually think I remember correctly, she might have been the top selling record player. Yeah, yeah. Like last year. I think she was the number one for like vinyl records. Right. She's getting cuts of that. People are streaming her on Spotify. She's getting a cut of Spotify records. If she came out and tried to profit maximize off of each concert, I think she would lose so many fans, she would yeah. lose that other money. So I yeah. think she she's she's profit maximizing across her units. No, I, I completely profit. agree. Um and is this the exact right price? Well, probably not, but I think I think it's close. Um, and I think Taylor Swift, and I say this with respect, is um, one of the most, um, you know, profit maximizing capitalists there are. There is in anywhere. She's savvy. She's oh, very well, savvy. It's, it's not just savvy, but like you've got people who are like they'll say like I'm a socialist, and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna go buy four all four different of Taylor Swift's specialty albums yeah. that are sixty bucks each. Like it just they're just handing money over. And if they started to have the idea that she's price gouging on concerts, that's all mm -hmm. gone. A lot of the people right. who love her will not get into the show. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's absolutely crucial. She's not seen as completely price gouging here. And the fact that they sell for so much more after really insulates her from those charges. Um, so I, I don't think I think from a long term point of view. Yeah, she I think if she thinks this is her last one. Mm -hmm. Well, you still have the records to sell after, but if you think it's the last one, then yeah, I think it might have been a mistake. You could have perhaps right. doubled the prices. You'd still, I think, doubling the prices, you're still selling out. Right. Her uh, her going away, her retirement. So yeah, actually, I guess Swifties get ready. Yeah. When she, when she takes her retirement tour, that that might be you might start seeing much higher prices. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think right now what she's doing, right, is I mean, she makes so much money off of things like Spotify and Apple yeah. music licensing that she needs, she needs her fans to basically spend the entire week just playing her song on repeat over and over. And again, like you said, if yeah. she comes out as price gouging, um, it, that, I, that, I think she, that she loses all disaster. that. That's the, yeah. like thinking from a risk management point of view that you've got to protect your reputation. And I mean, you mentioned savvy, unbelievably savvy, right? I mean, when, um, you know, the, uh, SBF's company that went under, mm -hmm. they approached Taylor Swift and they looked and they asked a question about, you know, that basically they asked a question about the securities and is this like through a license? And they're like, what's not? No, we're out. Yeah. And, and, you know, if she was approached, she could have made 20, probably gotten a $25 million endorsement deal for signing on and turned it down. Um, I mean, whereas a lot of then now a lot of others are in you know, Shaquille O'Neal just got served papers for this. Oh, you know, incredibly savvy and thoughtful. And and I do think there is part thinking, look, I'm, I am I think part of her is thinking, look, I'm making plenty off of this. These are my mm -hmm. fans. I don't need to charge the yeah. exorbitantly high prices, um, but is very much, you know, coming up with these specialty albums, which people value, right? If mm -hmm. you're spending 60 on it, we're economists. Clearly the people buying them value them value those as much more than $60. And so according to CNBC, Taylor Swift is the highest paid female entertainer in the world, earning $92 million in 2022. She of the top 10 earning entertainers in the world, she ranks ninth behind Tyler Perry, Brad Pitt, 
the Rolling Stones and other older male creatives in Hollywood. Okay. So right, she knows what she's doing. Right? Like you, you oh, can't brilliant. be the highest. Absolutely and that was her 2022 earnings. Yeah. I mean, right. Like the bulk of her concerts happening now. Yep. Uh, so yep. it'll be very interesting to hear. Um, yeah. 2023 promises to be an even bigger year for Swift as the musician kicks off her 52 night eras tour in March, which comes with a potential nine figure payout uh, per Forbes estimates. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, so. So those are a couple topics. There's there's a lot more. Right. We could be on here forever. Is there any other I mean, is there anything else that jumps out on economics, Taylor Swift and anything that you think uh, you think we should talk about in this one? And then if the listeners afterwards, if you say, how did you not talk about this? Leave us a comment. You know, we can always do another episode. We'll come back. We got we got plenty of time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So actually, Matt, you talked about the secondary market. And so this is a place where I think. I'm going to call it a fun opportunity for for principles of economics, where we often talk about supply and demand, market-driven outcomes, except you know when you have a secondary market, you probably aren't starting in a competitive market. Um, that's probably some sort of monopoly, monopsony, some sort of, some sort of market power is happening in that market. But then this secondary market comes out, and our idea is that it somehow figures it out on its own, where you actually do have lots of buyers, lots of sellers, stuff like that. Are you concerned? Actually, you know, I, I'm surprised we ha- now that I think about it, we haven't heard or I haven't heard a lot of updates. I think wasn't Congress supposed to be investigating Ticketmaster and StubHub and ticket fees? Wasn't this a yeah. thing like a couple months ago? I feel like I've we've lost yeah, it. Yeah, now we that voters aren't thinking about it anymore. Not, I haven't heard okay. much about it in the past. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thoughts on so right, we we like the idea of secondary market. I'm gonna say we. I'm, I'm gonna yeah, speak yeah. for oh, you. Yeah, I actually absolutely. don't know this. 100. I like the idea of secondary markets. But do you like the idea of one company running the secondary market? Uh, Well, generally monopoly. No, I don't generally like the ideas of monopolies, which doesn't necessarily mean I think the government coming in is going to come up with a better solution. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I think there's, you know, if you do not have competition, you run into, you can run into major issues. So here's where I've always gotten really confused. And maybe you can explain it in a way that will, I'll accept your explanation. So the, I would say the most popular ticket resale sites, Ticketmaster has a resale site or a resale side. Yeah. StubHub has a resale side. And then there's a bunch of other smaller ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Ticketmaster and StubHub, I think are, they Those have are two, I two massive ones. I have, there's one other one that I've gone to that doesn't have fees that sometimes has been a hair cheaper, but it's gotta be so small relative yeah. to the big two. So. so here, so give me the competition answer. Exactly what you said, right? StubHub's going to charge twenty five percent fees. I mean, like these things are massive. Like I, I've gone and I've gone on a, not even buying as a resale. I've gone on I think Ticketmaster, uh, yeah. a university that I went to to see a football game. I think it was Dayton uses Ticketmaster to sell their original tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a ten dollar general admission ticket. Um, if you go to the gate and pay at the at the booth, it's ten dollars exactly. No taxes, yeah. fees, nothing, and they give you a paper ticket. Yep. If you buy it online, it's ten dollars plus six fifty in taxes and fees. So it's a sixty-five percent markup. Yeah. How is it if we have these resale sites? What is the rationale here? Why? Why is competition not bringing those fees down, especially so, for something like StubHub, Ticketmaster? Like, it's, it's a great question that I've thought about a lot because it doesn't seem like there's massive barriers to entry here. No. Right. That's why is that and. It's not quite as dramatic as what you mentioned, you know, ten dollars. No, it's usually tw- t- ten to fifteen percent. Well, but like on Broadway, yeah. on Broadway tickets, if you buy them online uh, originally, you know, if you if you're buying a 
you know, an $80 ticket, which is usually not one of the more expensive ones, yeah. you'll, you'll pay an extra 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had a family of five. So actually we were thinking through like, actually our, when we went to Hamilton was l- later than our initially planned because about 10 days ahead of time, we knew we had a trip to New York. We looked and we're like, do we want to spend the extra $70 or go into New York? And we went mm-hmm. into, we waited and we went into New York and bought them at the, at the gate to save the money. This was, you know, 2015 when we got them. Um, so there shouldn't be, it, I don't see these massive barriers to entry to people. Um, to You would think if a company could come in and make a profit by telling a Broadway house, hey, we want to come in and be your provider. We think mm-hmm. we, we can make decent profits by charging five bucks a ticket. Yeah. Ticketmaster's charging you 11. Your customers will be better off because of this. Or, or you can charge an extra three bucks and you're better off and the customers are better off. Um, because of this, you know, the, the free market person in me, right. Thinks this would happen. Somebody would jump in and yeah, there's a lot of infrastructure to get it set up, but if there's really profits to be made, somebody would jump in and do it, but it's not happening. So that's, that's the part that I don't see why it hasn't happened. I don't get it, but I I would have to imagine that other plenty of people have looked at it and said, no, there's really not the profits there. I'm going to try to log in and see my last ticket because I feel like this is one of those things. And I think I want to say it was New York, maybe that passed a law that said whatever price is on websites needs to show the entire price. And I think that that was always a frustration uh, for me was, you know, you you're like, oh, I just found a cheap $20 ticket. And then you go to cash check out and you're like, oh, no, now it's actually $32. And so I think New York had passed. I want to say it was New York or New York City. That had passed a law that said, look, you, you could charge fees, whatever, but whatever price you're showing on the list of yep, prices, yep. it needs to include everything. Yeah. And I think that's where my struggle is, um, is when I check out, there's always uh, taxes. Okay, fine. I know I got to pay taxes. Sure. But it's always like there's a ticket fee. And then there's also like a service fee. I'm like, what are the, what are the differences yeah, between yeah. these fees? Um, all right, here we go. I got one. I went to Portland. Two weeks ago, May thirty first, I bought three tickets. Oh, it's not going to show. It's only going to. It's only going to show me the total. Oh, brutal. Oh, no, but those fees yeah. are. Oh. Yeah, those fees are pretty brutal. I've got it. Okay, three tickets. Price per ticket nineteen forty times three. Subtotal fifty eight twenty. Uh, just says total fees twenty one ninety five. So an extra seven bucks per each nineteen dollar ticket out of a twenty dollar ticket, right? Yeah. So you're, like, and that's just percent. Yeah. So I just, it was, that's always the part that confused me was that there was like a ticketing fee and a service fee. And I sort of understand like, okay, they are providing a service, right? They have infrastructure, they have a customer service, right? They've got things they've got to pay for. But in my mind, so does the ticket booth at the gate. There's somebody sitting there who has to print out a ticket. They don't charge me a ticket fee. I don't have to like pay a percentage of that dude's salary. Um, but again, this is always the point. They can get away with it. Exactly what you said, right? Like going to Hamilton. What if what if they sell out that night, right? You don't want to show up at the ticket booth and it turns out that you know all the seats are sold out. And yep. so in a sense, I think people are paying for it because it guarantees you a seat versus actually waiting at the box office for something. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so the, the ticket master thing made a colossal mess up when Taylor Swift first initiated, you know, sold the tickets. And when it wasn't messing up, people would buy the tickets. You know, and there's the price Taylor Swift was charging and then whatever Ticketmaster was charging, which was a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating. I don't understand how 
given it seems like there's so much money to be made, how there aren't more players in the market. Right. But the, the best explanation is a lot of firms that think, oh, yeah, we could do this, have looked at it and said, no, it's not worth it. Especially on the secondary side. So on the origination side, I understand why there's only a couple. Yeah. Uh, so Ticketmaster and Live Nation are, are bundled together. You know, they're, they, I don't know. I don't know who's, I think Live Nation is actually the parent company and Ticketmaster's underneath it. So a lot of artists are signed up with Live Nation. A lot of venues use Live Nation. So there's sort of this uh, bundling exclusivity contract type stuff where basically like if Taylor Swift wants to play at a particular stadium, say Lincoln Financial uh, Field. Actually, it's not called that anymore, right? It's not called the Link. What's the Philadelphia Stadium? I don't remember what it's called. Whatever the Philadelphia Stadium is called. It used to be called, I know it's, I know at least, unless it's changed, it used to be called Lincoln because I feel like they called it the Link. Yep. Um, right. But that's a Ticketmaster venue or a Live Nation venue. So you have to sell through that channel. Like I get it on the origination side. I totally. I understand what's going on in that sense. The secondary market, I just don't get it. I don't get how um, there's still all these situations. So I'll tell you my frustration on the secondary side as well. So those of you who don't know, I love traveling around to stadiums. I love going to sporting events. It's like my favorite thing to do just to go sit outside, drink a beer and enjoy some sports. One of the most frustrating things about participating in the secondary market is actually not paying the fees. It's when I want to sell a ticket, I also have to pay fees to sell it. And I think that's where my, that's really where my frustration comes in on the secondary market side is that if I had bought a ticket originally, actually, this has happened to me before and I was the grumpiest I've ever been in my life. I bought a ticket on the secondary market. So I paid my 20% fee, whatever my fees were. And then for whatever reason, I didn't go, or I think it got, actually, I think it got rained out and then they gave me a new ticket for the next day and I didn't want it. I don't remember what happened. So I tried to sell it and then I had to pay a fee to sell it. Oh man. And I was like, this sucks. I paid like, I paid like 40 bucks worth of fees and didn't even go to the game. Um, That's my frustration. Uh, Matt, let me, let me bring, let me steer this another direction on market structure. I've seen this written in an article. I personally don't agree with it. However, I'm curious and I want to hear your perspective on it. I have heard someone argue, and I think you could Google it if you really are curious. Uh, For listeners, if you really want to know, you could Google it. You could probably find it. I have heard somebody argue that the monopolization, I'm going to call it monopolization, but Ticketmaster becoming so powerful is actually a sign that the market is working and that if you didn't have these profit-driven companies, if if you have like essentially no profit, then you have no innovation. And that we should allow these singular companies, that that's actually a sign of a strong and vibrant market. When one company is so successful at what they're doing, they must be doing something right because they're buying other companies and they're taking over other markets. And that if they weren't good at what they were doing, then companies wouldn't use them. So I've heard an argument that monopolies are actually a sign of a really strong market economy. I mean, I remember, I actually remember seeing in a textbook an argument for a monopoly. I've heard of arguments for monopolies. I, I, yeah, I, actually, of, let me, let me pause. I feel like that was a, that was a, that was inappropriate of me to go that far. Oh, there okay. are benefits of monopolies and there's lots of reasons why I might not have it. But I've, I've heard that as a benefit before, right? If you have one company, they don't have to worry about competition. So then they could, you know, innovate and bring the best to consumers. No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that. Um, the weird part is usually if you so if you have a monopoly there are barriers you know but what are the reasons right there's some barriers to entry what are the barriers to entry um 
I don't think because, I mean, so what are the barriers to entry to Ticketmaster is kind of the key question. And it mm -hmm. seems to me, right, there's this infrastructure that they've built up that is too tough for anybody to replicate. That that has to be it in mm -hmm. my mind, or the infrastructure is not too tough to build up, but how much it would cost to build up the infrastructure isn't worth it for the lower prices you would expect to get if you were competing in a more competitive environment. So no, I, I don't buy into that part, the part that having the monopoly is healthy. Maybe the market, the healthy market actually led to Ticketmaster becoming so strong. Um, I almost but, want to read out quotes out of this so that you can see, um, yeah. you know, a private company has no power over its customers. There's no such thing as market power. I don't have to go to a Taylor Swift concert. You can't force me to buy or use that product or service. So do they actually have power over a market? If there's if there's a monopoly, they they have market power. But I mean, they're right, and you can't force anybody to go to a show. So that part that part I would agree with. But but no, I mean, if you have one, if you have a monopoly, you you have. So th this was the subtitle: Real competition, contrary to the textbook portrayal, is a rivalrous process in which companies fight to reach the top and to be the best. And a monopoly is a sign that you had a really competitive market. That you had. I, I mean, I can almost buy that sentence. Yep. Um, but you could also have a really competitive market without the monopoly coming in. And you could have had a not competitive market with a monopoly coming in. So yeah. I would suspect I'd find a lot wrong with the article. And I, again, I go back to, I understand it on the origination side. I, I yeah, completely yeah. get it, right? Like the, it, it would be way, the amount of competition Okay, actually, this goes back. I mean, let me let's 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 rewind a little bit. I wish I had a, like a rewind <laughs> noise, right? We can we can, we can ask uh, Charlotte can, to put that in. Charlotte to put a that's my noise for a rewind. Yeah, there are benefits to monopolies. So you know, Matt talked about uh, innovation, and you know, I have a section in my monopoly section of like when is it a good thing to have monopoly power? So things like patents, copyrights, trademarks. You know, we want to we want to make sure that if you're investing and in inventing a, pro a product that you're spending money up front, you need to have a little bit of monopoly power to recoup that money, but maybe not so long, right? So we might give you a patent for 10 years, give you a copyright for yep, 50 no. years. So that's one of the most, I think the most popular example often. Uh, but you know, a second one, and I think you actually started to do it, but we sort of skirted around it. Uh, one of the things that Matt talked about, right, the cost of setting up a website, a venue that is issuing tickets, uh, that largely falls under what's what I would I think you're trying to get at is essentially a, a good example of a natural monopoly Not, yep, where yep. you have economies of scale. Correct. If I wanted to offer tickets for a 70,000 seat stadium, the cost of setting up that site, making sure that the tickets match the seat and it's printed and delivered, the costs are really high. And as long as I can serve the entire 70,000 people there, I lower my average cost. I can provide things really cheap. Can do it more efficient. Cheaper do it more than efficiently. If firms jumped in. Yep. Yep. And um, so if you have two firms trying to split the venue, it gets really complicated, right? Imagine like if there's ten firms trying to sell tickets for one particular spot, yeah. it gets really complicated. No. So on the orig origination side, I completely buy. It's a natural monopoly. Yeah. Like it makes kind sense. of, but I mean, this kind isn't of. like railroads where it's not. You know, no, you no, it's not. Don't but, want two sets yeah. of tracks. I mean, it's yeah, it's software. I mean, come right. on. It's not but, that but there's, but there's also people on the back end, right? Like there's people who have to deal with customer issues. Sure, sure, sure. So I at least I at least understand on the origination side. And I'm going to go back not to the, the resale or, side. I don't understand on the resale yeah, side. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Because on the resale side, they're not the ones selling it. I own the ticket. 
I'm the yeah. one putting it online. So I should be able to put it on a site that says, hey, we're going to get you the most money possible, which means we're not going to charge you a large fee to use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, maybe it's a thick market problem. Maybe there's actually, you know what? Maybe that's a good answer. Maybe there's just, we actually maybe are overestimating how thick these markets are. So thick markets just means like lots of buyers, lots of sellers. Lots of sellers. Maybe there aren't that many people trying to buy tickets to justify 10 different resale sites. Cause like, I don't want to list my site. I don't want to list my ticket on 10 different sites. I can really only pick one. And so I have to pick a single place to list my ticket. And I'm going to probably pick the one that's the easiest or the one I'm most familiar with. And so maybe that's what traps people in is like, Hey, I always use StubHub. Yeah. I'm going to list my ticket on StubHub because I can't list it on Ticketmaster and StubHub and all the other ones. Cause like, what if I sell it on all four by accident? Maybe that's yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's a possible explanation. Um, for, and I've used that and I've used TickPick as the other one and they do not charge fees. So the price you see is the price that it is, which is- So, so like, fees are built in. Yeah, well, <laughs> sure. yeah, right, yeah, right. Well, yeah. Right, who knows but, how much the original person's getting? Yep, yep. True, true. Yeah. So. Actually, so this is a good opportunity. You know, a lot of times I think you and I, I think we're guilty of this. We've always come in and said, you know, these are the answers. This is an example of this. Yeah. There are a lot of times as economists, like we don't know the answer. No, no, we're not there, sure. We're not sure. Like we could just guess. That, that could sure actually so. be a fun episode. Is like, a, what are times in classes that you say you don't know the answer? That might be a good future episode. This is a I good one, right? Like, like I can't, expl- I yeah. cannot explain what's, I can give you ideas. Yeah. So. I don't know. Intra- so, I, I mean, if you, if we didn't cover your favorite Taylor Swift and economics question, leave us a, leave us a comment or send us an email to let us know. But Getting to the point, you know, towards the end of uh, end of the episode to talk a little bit about pop culture. And thankfully, do we, we want to do research? I have a research thing for you. Go for it. I could do a little bit of research. Um, this was a really cool book I read. I think we've talked about it in a previous episode. We try to always squeeze in a, you know, yep, a talk, yep, yep. research, pop culture. Um, did you ever read Rockonomics? I never did. By Alan Kruger? Yep. Great book. Absolutely great book. So it came out after he passed. Um Rockonomics essentially tells the story of the, the economics of the music industry. He had like interviewed a bunch of different artists before. So one of the things actually, oh man, I wish I would have gone back to that uh, that Spotify comment earlier. So when we were talking about Spotify artists and this idea of like global artists um, and popularity, the fact that we're even talking about different artists and artists playing in other countries is actually, and according to Alan Kruger, and I think actually his work is based on the Christmas paper that we did back in oh, yeah dead weight loss of Christmas. dead weight loss who was written by what's his um, name uh, Wald Wald Fogel Wald Fogel, Wald Fogel. Uh, so I actually think it's based on Wald Fogel's research but he talks about it in the book um, essentially like why is that the case like if you were to go back fifty years before right so go back to like the nineteen mm-hmm. seventies sixties uh, back then you might have like a singular worldwide um, superstar, or maybe like two or three, right? So like, I always think back like the Beatles versus the Elvis. Yep, yep. Like it was really, like it was them, right? But they were coming from English speaking countries. And essentially their argument was like, why is it that in the seven, 60s, 50s, 70s, you know, back then, why is it then that you only really had like Elvis was the main person? But today, if you were to look at, you know, top superstars, right? We're talking about a Colombian singer. We're talking about BTS and K-pop being up there, Taylor Swift being up there, Drake is Canadian. You have all these massive singers 
um, who really can, right? Taylor Swift can go to Europe. Beyonce can go to Europe. Taylor Swift can go to South America and she's going to be just as popular um, in those places as other places. And that wouldn't have happened before. So it's a great chapter that talks about not that streaming has changed it, but streaming is like largely that portion. Um, but essentially that we have that because of this uh, switch from CDs to streaming that before, and it, you can, they actually sort of track it over decades. So if you think back to like 1960s, you have vinyl records, which are really hard to ship uh, internationally. So if there was an amazing, we'll just go K-pop, right? If there was an amazing Korean artist, you would have had to ship an entire vinyl record from Korea to the United States. You as a purchaser would have had to go into that. Well, actually first your local record store would have had to purchase that to put on their shelves. Yeah. You would have had to go in and realistically, you might not have listened to it because you don't understand Korean. And yeah. so you're not going to pick up a Korean one. You're not going to spend your money on that. And so it talks about essentially the shift of how um, back then when you had full records, you really only listened to people who were from, who spoke the same language, which is why Beatles versus Elvis is fine. They're both speaking English. Yeah, 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 you wouldn't yeah. have picked up a Korean record player, but then like shifting to CDs, much easier to ship. And so it's much easier to transport and then switching to streaming. So it talks about like this international trade model of essentially once it becomes cheaper to trade, so the cost of trading between countries goes down, you can now consume more of those other uh, products. And so it's much easier to consume Korean music if I'm in the United States today than it would have been back in the 1960s. Yeah, and so because yeah. I can consume it, I can listen to it, I can grow and I can become popular um, so it's a great chapter. It's an amazing chapter, it's, but it's based on Walt Fogel's research. And he's got some actual like data that empirically analyzes like what's the cost of falling and how does that change? Uh, yeah, yeah. Popularity. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'll have to check out the check out the book. So that's yeah. great. That's and great. it's a great shift. It talks about because streaming makes everything so much cheaper. Artists don't make any money off of their record sales anymore. So now it's pivoted to they have to have these mega concerts, whereas before you Whereas before, and Matt's, Matt's, how old are you? You're 20 years older, 15 years older than me? Uh, not, I don't think that old. I'm 40. I'm, I turned 47 and okay. maybe by the time this drops. Okay. So you're about a decade older than me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So the right previously artists traveled around the country touring to sell the records. Cause that's actually why they were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah, the, the concert is the most important part, which is why yeah. Taylor Swift's on a 50 concert sell, tour. They want to sell their merchandise. They want to sell merchandise. And, um, and it's basically right. You're like, we're consuming so much more media that you go to the concerts and spend tons of money instead. Yeah. So yeah. that's our research stuff. So get a little research. That's really good. That's good. That's really good. Um, so Taylor Swift has a number of songs that um, that do this. And I know you have a full list. So if I give one that's on your list, you have okay, others. I'll, I'll skip it. Matt and um, I decided we may be coming out with a paper soon. So the, be on the um, so the one that I'll do, and it's really simple, but it's one of the more, it's kind of a fascinating, I think it's, um, gives a fascinating look into the idea of both trade-offs and actually, you know, in some ways it's economics, but in some ways it's weighing probabilities of various events happening. And so I think Blank Space by Taylor Swift is kind of a fascinating look with some economic principles. So was that on your list? That had to have been on your I list. have it on my list as marginal thinking. Yeah. Taylor's so, trying to find the next one. So there is the next one, but I also think oh. there's, um, you know, just within this, like, there's the discussion of like, um, you know, 
could last forever or could go down in flames, right? So you've got to weigh the okay. probabilities. You're, you're, you're essentially making an expected value calculation if you want to start dating Taylor Swift, right? Like it could be, could be great and maybe it's this thing that lasts a while or it could be a disaster and she's going to write a song about you and shame you and, and you'll never live that down, right? Like, you so, know, yeah. so these are probabilities you have to weigh and in theory, you're only going to go through mm. and do that if um, the... You know, and I think, well, you know, I think actually the phrase is the high worth the pain is in there. Yeah. It's, so it's kind of a fascinating okay. on top of marginal thinking. I actually think it's a really good um, expected value analysis, which yeah. goes a little bit beyond economics, but is kind of a key component in thinking through. So the note that I had for the marginal thinking was Taylor's trying to find the one and she's already been through a long list of ex-lovers. So she's going one at a time yeah. to try to find that next one. Uh, but I do have people should compare the cost and benefits of the next item, which so I guess it's linking, yeah, yeah, linking yeah. in with yours as well. I'm gonna give you a really easy one. Cool. So th that's the one you pay. You pay blank spaces. Yep, yep. I think there's a there's an even easier economic concept one. What else would you pick? Is if you had to pick another one, I I I, I, I will not presume to guess. Okay, my favorite my favorite song, my favorite Taylor Swift song, "Shake It Off." Okay, the one, and I think that's the one right before it on that album, right? Shake it off, shake it off, shake it off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a really great example uh, to talk about not falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy. If you are upset about something, uh, you should not let that weigh you down. Uh, you can't get that money back, uh, so you should instead shake it off uh, and move on and, and focus on what's in front of you rather than what's behind you. So super easy. I picked an easy one. Um, that's at the top of my yeah. list because it was the easiest one on there. But that's you know when you're teaching, right? You want <laughs> you want stuff that's easy, good concepts to put through. Yes. So. yes. Um, yeah. Okay. No, I was wrong on the the ordering on the tracks, but they are on the <laughs> same album. So um, cool. No. Well, uh, the beer was good. Mine mine has been long gone. So I have just a little bit left, but I had a I had a tall a tall you boy the tall, rather than you had the tall. Well, thank you to everybody who tuned in once again. Uh, please. Give us a five-star rating and a short review on Apple or your favorite um, favorite podcast provider. That is that is the that's the current that's the way you could if you enjoy this that you could give <laughs> us a little bit of something back is by giving yes. us a good review. We we have nothing to offer other than another episode after this. We don't have merch. We have no contests. We no didn't. merch yet. No merch yet. Let's yes. get some merch. I think yeah. that's what we need. I think we need the, to start selling merch. Uh, I think we have enough followers that would definitely buy an Econ Happy Hour sticker. It, I, I think we could put some good stuff together. And, I mean, I, I think I'd be be willing to, you know, you write a review, right? You get something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So there's 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 ways to think about this. But uh, if you um, have friends uh, out there, so, you know, Matt and I are, uh, Matt's pretty much like, it's just us. So if you actually have friends, uh, feel free to sign <laughs> them up for the Substack. Go ahead and put their email address in there. Uh, yeah, just yeah. sign up for them so that they can get it and then they can give us. They won't mind. Reviews. They won't mind. No, I mean, worst case scenario, they'll just unsubscribe. So maybe they'll sign True. up and learn some econ along the way. True. So, well, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, Jadrian, great to talk with you. And Thanks, man. Cheers. Until the next thank time. You. Cheers.